Welcome to the Lend Academy podcast, episode number 136. This is your host, Peter Renton, founder of Lend Academy and co-founder of Lendit. Support for the Lend Academy podcast and the following message comes from Wonder Capital, the easiest way to invest in large-scale solar energy projects across the U.S. With Wonder, you can help finance renewable energy projects while earning up to 7.5% annually. To get started, visit wondercapital.com slash lendacademy. Wonder Capital, where impact investing meets capitalism. Today on the show, I'm delighted to have Don Davis. He is the co-founder and managing partner at Prime Meridian. Now, Prime Meridian are an investment management firm focused on the marketplace lending space. They've been around for many years. And in fact, I had Don on the podcast back in 2014. It's been almost four years since then. So I wanted to get him back on the show to talk about how he's been able to grow his company, how he's been able to you know, diversify his offerings and what his thoughts are on the space today. It's, the marketplace lending space has changed a lot. We talk about that. You know, we talk about the due diligence he does on new platforms. We talk about the pullback in 2016 and how he was able to survive and, and thrive during that time. And we, we talk about what the future holds. It was a fascinating interview. Hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to the podcast, Don. Thank you. Great to be here. Okay, so, and it's been, I went back and looked, it's been almost four years, it was um, April of 2014 when we, we last had you on, but uh, so a lot of people probably don't know uh, a lot about you, so maybe you could just start off by giving us a little bit of background about yourself. Yeah, sure. So I've been involved in, in finance in one form or another for the past 20 plus years. More recently in 2004, I founded Novus Investments, which was an alternative investment management firm. And we were registered as a CTA as well as an introducing broker since we allocated to other managers as well. Uh, in 2008, uh, the one strategy that I managed and traded uh, produced a positive double-digit return for our investors. And by 2012, I'd been ranked the number one CTA in the U.S. Nice. Uh, for total performance. <laughs> uh, thank you. Over uh, Three times over a five- and seven-year period. Uh, everything was going great. I mean, we were, we were doing well, killing it, except for the fact that we had two clearing firms we worked with that suddenly went bankrupt, which, as you can imagine, makes things uh, a bit difficult. <laughs> right. right. Uh, but, but in hindsight, you know, the timing was, was good, as I already had a watchful eye on the burgeoning P2P marketplace lending space, uh, and the pivot has worked out quite well, and here I am today. All right. All right. So then when exactly did you start PMI? And tell us about how marketplace lending got on your radar. Yeah, so I had been watching it closely with great interest prior to the launch. And also, while I was running Novus, my partner, Val Katiev, was very active in P2P lending, uh, mm -hmm. being one of the very first lending investors at Prosper mm -hmm. uh, in March of 2006. Wow, that is he built a, <laughs> Yeah, he, so he, I think he was, yeah, it, it was two weeks after they opened up for business. Right, he, right. he saw an article in the New York Times. Right. It was either New York Times or Wall Street Journal, and he, and he opened up an account immediately. But, but he built up a sizable portfolio. It held up incredibly well during the Great Recession. And then a few years later, after he had another successful exit from one of his businesses, he was looking to get involved in the space you know, in a more meaningful way. So we eventually hooked up and became partners. Uh, Primer Reading was started in April 2012. Uh, Val started off as an early investor in our first fund, and then he later bought in as a more material partner, an active member. And as far as why the, the firm was started, 
you know, it was started because I'm a believer in the industry, first and foremost. And I sensed that there was great potential uh, to build a scalable business over time mm-hmm. and also to provide an attractive alternative for our investors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, me too. That's uh, I've been a big believer from, from day one as well. Yep. So back, in the, back when we had you on four years ago, yeah, I think you just had the one fund, and now it seems like you've you've expanded your offerings. Tell us a little bit about the you know the expansion of your company over the last four years. Yeah, you know, so by by intention, you know, we have built up a family of four different strategies, and 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 that was by design. You know, I think that you know great businesses of all industries are led by great people managing great products, and you got to have the right process, of course, as well. And so it wasn't just about having a single fund uh, for us from day one. This was a really a vision that we had um, early on is let's build up. Let's show that we can demonstrate that we can produce something successful and that works. And then let's build off of that success and, and build up different product lines for, for different investor needs. And so our funds are limited to accredited and qualified investors, you know, so we can't naturally go into too much detail. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do, we do cover all the major verticals, uh, including consumer, small business, and real estate. You know, one of our funds is leveraged uh, by intention for investors that are very comfortable uh, with the with the space and they and they and they want you know a, a leveraged return. And then we uh, the other funds are intentionally unlevered, so zero leverage, just a sort of a clean, transparent, uh, diversified you know uh, fund in each of the major verticals. Okay, okay. So then, what can you share? Um, like the scale you guys are at. Like what what is your your total assets under management today? Yeah, our total um, AUM is approximately 650 mil uh, today, and that's okay. all in uh, marketplace loans mm-hmm. um, in the in the industry. Our minimum investment's 500k. You know, again, it's accredited and qualified investors, and that uh, AUM you know has grown quite a bit since the last time we right. had, we, we had the, uh, <laughs> the podcast. <laughs> yes, yes, it has indeed. So then, let's can, can we just give a sense of the of the type of investors. That you're working, that are coming into your fund, and how how that's changed over the last four years. Are you are you still? Is it high net worth individuals? I mean, who who are the the people coming into your fund? Sure. So as our AUM continues to grow, naturally, so does the average size of our investor. Hence, in the early days, it was the individual high net worth investors and some smaller registered investment advisors. Uh, and these days, it's the you know the family offices, the fund of funds, and institutions that we're mostly talking to. So we have you know large asset managers um, around the world, you know single multifamily offices, fund of funds, institutions, you name it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious about like how your conversations with these investors have changed. Like here we are, early 2018. The industry has been around for for over a decade, and a lot of people know about the major players uh, in the space. So how would you say? When you're talking with the potential investors, how has the conversation changed um, from you know, today from what it was like you know, two or three years ago? Well, first off, investors have gotten much more educated and sophisticated on the space, uh, which I appreciate. Mm-hmm. Um, it often makes conversations easier uh, because those are the conversations I like to have. Sometimes, though, it does make it things more inefficient and difficult because a lot of investors out there are getting fed bad information and false narratives. And one example of that is that the underwriting has gotten worse in 2017 at major consumer platforms, right. which simply isn't true. And the data point that, that some of these investors are being fed uh, by some people out there 
is they, they'll, they'll show the index, let's say, of like a Prosper or Lending Club in 2015 and 16. You know, the index, which has the, the index, uh, the, uh, the index uh, return and the index default rate and the, mm-hmm. and, the, and the loss curves. And then they show that index for Prosper and Lending Club for 2017. And what you see is you see delinquencies and, and, and the default rate is a little bit higher on the loss curve in 2017. But here's the part that they're missing is that is that the, the components of the index has changed. Right. So if you remember, I think in 2015, 16, you know, like Prosper, for example, 40% of the index was, was A's and double A's. Mm-hmm. It was super prime borrowers made up 40% of, of, of the passive index. And that's because some of their, their big investors wanted that. And then now it's a little bit more evenly distributed with, with less double A's and A's. So now the index is a little bit more diversified so you have higher, you have a higher whack, higher weighted average coupon, and you have a little bit higher delinquency and default, but the net return is also higher. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that's how, that's how I think investors can take a statistic and, and be misled to, into a false narrative if they're not getting the whole story. Right, right. Now, we've, we've certainly seen that. And I know that um, we've had, you know, I, I write about my own personal returns every quarter and, you know, they, they're not where they were uh, a couple of years ago, although, you know, we start to, you know, starting to see some of the earlier, well, some, some of the, the later um, 2017 vintages are actually seem to be doing better. And I think part of it is that, you know, they, they, they've increased the, so they, like in 2015, and we all remember it was just a crazy time back then when there was just so much in, investor money sloshing around the industry that um, they felt like they could, you know, that, as you said, like Prosper sort of were, they'd had all this demand for this low, you know, low interest paper. And so, you know, you had, you had, you had, Interest rates came down. I mean, like particularly when it came to like you've been around for a long time, 2012, 2013. I mean, you could get you could get double digit returns. You know, I wouldn't say yeah. easily, but you were they were certainly available. But over yeah. the last, um, you know, that, that, that was I think back then we're not we're not going to go back to that anytime soon because they you know they've increased they've they've reduced their rates and then they've increased them you know again now to probably back to a more fair level. Would you say? I mean, it depends on how you define fair, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, but, but yes, I, I would agree um, in large part with everything you said, correct? Right, right. Okay. Yeah. So then, you know, we, can you share the names of, of platforms that you're investing on today? You know, sure. what, like, you know, you say so you mentioned the three different verticals, but do you, can you, can you share some names? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So on the, on the consumer side, we work with the, you know, the, the three majors, um, Lending Club, Prosper, and we and we and we do a little bit um, with with SoFi on their consumer loans, uh, not on student uh, loans. And so those are the three biggest uh, consumer originators in the U.S. And and a small business, some of the names we work with are Biz2 Credit, Lending Club, you know, small business. We do a, a, a funding circle. Um, so those are some of the firms we work with there on on real estate. It's a share state, patch of land, you know, a lending home, Money360, or some of the names we're working with there. Mm-hmm. Right, right, and we're always on the lookout for 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 other platforms as well. You know, from day one, we never wanted to be a guinea pig uh, for for anybody's platform. We, right. we don't like the really small ones. We don't like some of these um, these really these small balance sheet lenders out there, especially, which I think are um, bringing different types of risk. You know, you have a much higher tail risk when you're working with some of those types of lenders, and so we prefer really you know really strong. Um, you know, marketplace lenders with strong balance sheets, uh, really strong management, and that also have uh, strong growth. Mm-hmm. So then, just on that, that's that's an interesting point. That 
how would you obviously you've you've brought on new platforms over over time you talked about some of the larger names but they weren't all around uh, you know a long time ago so i'm i'm curious about the process that you go through you 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 gave a little bit of a hint there but can we go in a little bit more depth about what you do sort of to do diligence a new platform yeah so you know again just you know segueing off of what i said it's it's really just you know getting to know uh, the the management um, inside out. We want to know the management's background. They need to have underwriters, a strong underwriting experience. They need to have a background in in what they're doing today. Um, you had a lot of smart people enter the industry on the originator side and on the fund management side over the years. Um, mm-hmm. I, I can testify a lot of very smart people. I'll, I'll definitely um, testify to that. But they all had varying uh, backgrounds. You know, some were just um, someone that worked in a in a tech industry, or some worked in this industry. So they had one um, area of success in their life, but they didn't have a lot of experience at maybe being a fund manager or being an originator or being an underwriter. And so I talked about that. I think early on at, at, at some of the some of the lender conferences and so forth um, on, on panels that I had some concerns about you know some of the people entering the space that you know if they don't have a lot of the right experience or the right team that at some point I think that's going to lead to 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 some issues and problems. So so one of the things is that you know you know who's who's doing the underwriting and what's their background, right? It's like what you know what what have you been doing the last ten twenty years? It seems so elementary, but again you'd be surprised at some of the uh, the answers uh, to those questions with some of these originators. So we want to know the background. There has to be a lot of depth and expertise there. They have to be solid. They have to have a really strong uh, balance sheet. You know, they have to, I, I don't want to do business with anyone that I think might be going under in the next six months. Uh, they have to have institutional internal controls or at least, you know, be, uh, you know, halfway there with very strong internal controls. You know, who's their auditor? They have to be willing to work with our auditor for look-through testing. You know, in the early days, uh, that was a little more difficult than it is today. And with some of the smaller guys, that sometimes uh, can be cumbersome. So they have to be uh, willing to do that, and they have to pass our look-through testing. And so it, it, there's really just a, you know, there's a there's a series, there's a checklist that we have, just like, you know, investors will have a checklist on doing due diligence on us. We have that with these with these platforms. And they really have to check all of the boxes. And at the same time, I do want to add that, you know, we can't be too picky or perfect in, in our, with our due diligence requirements because if we were that way in 2012, right, we wouldn't even have launched. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I mean, the real, the real big issue in 2011 and 2012 for me was really on, on platform risk and on, you know, do you have bankruptcy remote segregation of assets with a backup servicer? Mm-hmm. Because I had very real experience with two clearing firms going under, and so I was, I was, I was pretty nervous about that type of tail risk. And I remember one of the first questions I asked, you know, former CEO uh, Renaud Planche at Lending Club, is what happens to our clients' assets when you guys go under? This was in 2011, and he says, "Well, we don't plan on going under." <laughs> and of course, I said, "Well, neither did Lehman, and neither did Bear Stearns, <laughs> right? <laughs> and neither does MF Global. You know, and nobody plans on going under." So I said, well, when, when, you, when you have the answer to that question, I, I think we'll start doing business. And, and it was in 2012, actually, Prosper was the first I remember that. Yep. to launch bankruptcy remote segregation. Mm-hmm. And they rolled in all the existing notes mm-hmm. um, into that. And that's when we felt comfortable. That's why we started off with Prosper only uh, in the beginning for that right. reason. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, that's, um, 
that was back in the day when also Prosper had, you could tell who was investing on the platform and not, not names, but they, everyone had a screen name and you could see, you know, who, who was, uh, the large investors and what they were investing in it was it was a fascinating fascinating yeah. time but oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> we used to we used to do some reverse engineering to uh to see how we were uh, performing compared to the competition right right yeah there was it was, it was only about three or four institutional investors back uh back right, in those right. days so it was and then then they removed the screen names and all the the transparency which is probably fair enough but uh it was yeah, I, right. I, I, I used to be fun looking at looking at all of the different loans that, that strategies that people were, were adopting it was it was fascinating but anyway we we digress right so i want to talk about like there's been some consolidation i think i, I remember hearing you talk about it on one of the lender panels a couple of years ago that you know i mean i'm sure you have due diligence some of these platforms that have that have gone out of business and yeah. I, I, i'm just curious about the I mean, it's not surprising. I mean, we all, we all knew that there was, you know, there was too much money going into some of these ideas that probably should never have been funded in the first place. But then, what would you say are some of the common themes that that these that led to some of these platforms' demise? I mean, is there something that we can all learn here from, like you talk about your due diligence process that you said no to a platform? What what are some of the things that maybe people, you know? People can sort of glean from from your knowledge about why companies go out of business. Yeah, you know, so so first off, I'll start off by saying, and I think you were at this at this at the conference um, w- with me uh, just a few months ago, Peter. Um, I remember seeing you, but uh, I was on a panel. We talked about this, and I think it's, yep. a, it's a good um, uh, intro. You know, first associates had said had said publicly that um, over the past twelve months they have taken over uh, backup servicing on on nine different originators. Mm-hmm. Now, of those nine originators, just over the past twelve months, nine originators have failed that they had to take over servicing for. Of those nine, one of them was a was a small marketplace lender, and the other eight were balance sheet lenders. Right. And so that's a so first and foremost, you know, and that and that was so that was a kind of a thesis that I think that I had right. You know, a few years ago, as as I was talking about that, there were a lot of intelligent people that were disagreeing, saying, "No, the balance sheet lenders that have skin in the game, they're better underwriters. They're 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 better to do business with the marketplace lender." The problem is, so first and foremost, what causes a lot of companies to go out of business is leverage, excessive leverage, mm-hmm. and that and therein lies the problem with a lot of these balance sheet lenders is that they're using excessive leverage. Right. So there's balance sheet lenders out there that are using a hundred percent leverage. Mm-hmm. I mean, they have none of their own skin in the game and it's all borrowed skin that they're paying very high interest rates on to just, you know, leverage the book. And the ones that do have skin, it's a very small piece, usually maybe 5% at most that I've seen. So excessive leverage, that's what caused MF Global to go under. That's mm-hmm. what caused Lehman to go under. That's what caused Bear Stearns to go under. That's what caused long-term capital management to go under back in 1998. And so I think that is is the biggest issue right there. And then with the others, uh, with the one marketplace lender, I just think they, you know, with marketplace lending, the challenge is, so so the benefit to to balance sheet lending is that you can, whatever's going to happen, I think it's going to happen quickly, right? So it's easier to make a profit because you're taking all of the return and you're leveraging the return. So if you're very disciplined at, at money management and you're very disciplined at living beneath your means and managing your expenses and you grow... You can you can make good profits in in short order, with marketplace, but but you're at a higher risk. With marketplace lending, it takes much longer and much more resources to scale, right? So mm-hmm. you're losing money for for long periods of time because your your margins are, are thinner, and so but but I think it's easier to survive. 
And right. as you can see, in 2016, we had the, the headaches with, with Lending Club and Prosper and so forth. They, they both, in fact, if you think about it, the three largest originators in consumer, all three have had their CEOs ousted in the last 18 months. Right, right. That's right? very true. <laughs> but all three of them, in my opinion, are, 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 are going to be around for, 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 for many years. Mm-hmm. And so that just goes to show you they survived. But if you have a, a, a balance sheet lender that maybe has the CEO ousted, like there was a very large balance sheet lender that did, that you know, usually, usually they're in trouble. So on the on the on the marketplace lending side, is if you're too small and you're just not growing fast enough, then you know that's where I think you're going to get pressure. And the one that went under, I think that's exactly what happened. And part of our due diligence we did on them, and and just really in the months before they went under, you know, before it was known they were going to go under, you know, um, I just everything was looking okay, but I, I just, it was more of a qualitative uh, type of due diligence where I sensed there was some desperation there. Mm-hmm. And, um, and when, I think when people get desperate, it's, it's, uh, you know, that, that, that the, that the end is near. Right. Right. Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. So I want to talk about the, um, you just mentioned sort of the pullback in, in 2016, even before the, um, Renault LaPlanche exit from Lending Club, there was definitely, you know, some, some pullback on the investor side. How, how was that for you guys? Did you, did you get, I imagine you, you had some nervous, you had some nervous investors after the Renault LaPlanche episode, but so how, how was that time period for you? So customer service uh, certainly spiked up. Right, right. <laughs> our, 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 our hours of customer service went up significantly after that. Uh, there had to be lots of discussions, emails, you know, investor letters, and individual emails and individual phone calls and conference calls. So that goes up during, during times like that. And really the biggest concern was, you know, are they going out of business and how is that going to affect my investment with you? And, and is it going to have any impact on the loans and, and how are things, you know, performing and, and, and what's the next three months, six months look like, you know, those are, I think were some of the common and naturally, you know, rightfully so, and so we, you know, although the customer service went up, we, we really didn't get many redemptions uh, at all, you know, on a percentage basis. I think it was, it was very, very little, uh, low single digits in, in redemptions. And even better than that was we had a lot of new deposits coming in. And I think part of what has helped us, too, is there, there's been some consolidation, you know, in the industry. And there was some, some other funds out there that, that struggled, and some of them went out of business. And so because of that, you know, I think when you have fewer funds remaining, you know, then, then I think there, um, there's, there's fewer, you know, there's fewer places for investors to, to allocate. And so that, that I think actually helped us pick up our, our AUM growth after that happened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure. So I want to get your, your take on, on just your view of the marketplace lending space today. I mean, we, we've certainly, uh, you know, we've come a long way, um, but we've, it hasn't been, it hasn't been a smooth ride. And, you know, we had the, the go-go days of 2015 and then the pullback in 2016. And, you know, in 2017 was, was a more sort of, uh, focus on profitability and and getting getting your house in order. So where where are we today? And what just give us give us your sort of take on on what where the industry is today? Yeah, you know, I think the um, I'm optimistic on the industry. Um, I have been since day one. I was mildly optimistic uh, in 2011, 2012. By 2014 and 15, when everybody was giddy, 
I was mildly optimistic. I was probably one of the, one of, one of the least optimistic uh, people in 2014 right. and 15. Um, and, to, and then uh, after 2016, when people started getting less optimistic, I'm still, you know, really the same. And but it's for, for different reasons. And, and first and foremost, you know, I'm not married to any industry. I'm not married to any asset class or any strategy. You know, it's really if a strategy is totally not working, or the industry's falling apart, or doesn't look good. You know, then then it's time to pivot and 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 do something different uh, for our investors or, or or change the strategy. So you know, we don't see that just because returns have drifted, just because you've had some vintages in in, in late fifteen and, and and sixteen that underperformed the vintages before that and after that. That doesn't make the asset class bad. Just because you've had some some issues with you know one company or another, that doesn't make the industry or the asset class bad. So overall, when we look at this industry and we compare it to you know, on a relative basis, it's still very attractive. We still think um, it gives a, a very attractive alternative to other fixed income investments out there. So we really like the industry a lot. You know, that being said, you know, um, uh, over time, you know, great fund managers do need to, to evolve. You do need to always be on the lookout for, you know, you know, where is the industry evolving and what's the next niche and what's the next vertical. And so we're we're definitely uh, we have lots of those talks and and discussions internally about um, how we can always be one step ahead of the game. Mm-hmm. So then, so then on that, like, what what areas do you like most, and what do you like least, um, shall we say? You know, so over the past, you know, and this is you know one of our you know our our newer funds that covers the real estate vertical. You know, so that that's um, an area that we've had some interest in you know, for, for a few years. Mm-hmm. And we watched it very closely for about a year before, before launching that vertical. It, it, I, I like a lot. I think it, it it's very interesting. It's a, it's just, it's a, it's, a, it's a little bit different than some of the other verticals and, and, um, and how it operates and, and, the, and the type of borrowers and the type of, and the type of loans, et cetera. So, so that's, that's one I like a lot. Even then though, it's, it, you know, what we're seeing in this current market is that, you know, as as LIBOR is on the rise and Fed funds are on the rise, we see consumer rates going up. But in some of the other verticals, uh, like small business and real estate, we don't see that happening. We see, you know, yields either holding, you know, uh, holding tight or even drifting down because of, uh, of of investor demand. And so even though I like that space a lot, you know, we keep a watchful eye. We have lots of discussions with the originators on that, because I think one thing that a lot of originators miss that is most important for long-term success, in my opinion, is that it's all about borrower experience and investor return. Mm-hmm. And I think that most originators, even the big names, for, forget that. Borrower experience and investor return, because the vast majority of borrowers, they want the best experience, the best service, they want the fastest turnaround. And if the interest rate's a point or two higher or lower, I don't think it's a showstopper for the vast majority of borrowers. Right, but for investors, it's about investor return. Mm-hmm. You know, so if if you can have the the right return for the investors and have outstanding borrower experience, that's going to be, I think, a long term success uh, story for for originators that are focused on that. And I think sometimes originators they just look only at how do we how can we facilitate more volume um, in the easiest fastest way, which usually means lowering returns. Right. Right. And so one of my concerns is that we don't want to see any of the real estate originators make the same mistakes that the consumer originators did, yes. you know, a couple of years ago. So that's just what I like the most, but I have some concerns on, on, on that topic. Least, you know, it, it, uh, 
you know, I would say student loans. I probably like the least. Maybe, um, you know, some of the auto paper, mm-hmm. you know, uh, some parts of auto is, is interesting to me and some parts I don't like a lot. Like if you're buying a brand new car as a prime borrower, I, I don't think that's, uh, that's very interesting at all. And um, and student loans that we've never had an interest in. Right, right. And that's just because of the yields, I presume? Yeah, well, it, well it's yield and also I, it's tail risk. And again, it's, it's tail risk is what I think a lot of investors uh, overlook. And so you may have uh, many, 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 many years of low defaults and, and, and low delinquencies, and it looks you know wonderful on paper, but tail risk is very difficult to quantify based on looking at statistics. And I think there's a lot of tail risk in, in student loans because, you know, student loans, uh, you know, there, there are people out there, uh, you know, very smart people out there, uh, very, very successful investors that say that have said publicly that student loans are in a bubble mm-hmm. and have been. And it's a disaster waiting to happen. And so it's very uh, it's very heavily politicized. It's, um, you know, politicians talk about all the time about giving students a break and extending their payments and giving them holidays and and you know, doing whatever it takes to never let them default, you know. And, and so as an investor, I just think that's, that's big tail risk. It's kind of sloppiness. It's, it's very, it's a different type of treatment than most, than most um, other forms of credit. And it's low returns to boot. Mm-hmm. Right. So not my, not my type of product. <laughs> Understood. Understood. So we're almost out of time, but a couple more questions I want to, I want to ask. Uh, like you, I noticed you, you were on the Inc. 5000 list of the fastest growing private companies in America, um, you know, last year. And, and obviously you've, you've grown tremendously since our last conversation. So what are the, what are the things that, that you can point to that have really, that have helped you grow your business the way you have? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, and we also I want to point out we also made uh, the Bay Area, San Francisco as well. We were number fourteen on the uh, on the top one hundred San Francisco list, which is um, which was very humbling and exciting as well. Congratulations! Some big names like like thank you like Salesforce, you know, um, and other big names here in the Bay Area have graced the pages of that of that list before. Mm-hmm. And then again, we were on the Inc. Five Thousand as you mentioned, and this is of all industries, you know, all all companies, all industries, you know, in in the country and in the Bay Area. And so as far as what I can point to. You know, it's it's having the right team first and foremost. Having the right team, we have great people uh, that all work very hard, and we all have to sh- share the same goals. And you know, we have great products in this space. We're very dedicated and focused to the space. We do a great job of portfolio management and risk management. I think so. We've done a good job for our investors, and we work hard just getting the message out there. And and from day one, early on. And I, you've been the same way, you know, and, and I think I've, I've learned from some of the others in the industry as well, but it's about education for us. Mm-hmm. And so when I'm out there, you know, speaking at a conference or out there, you know, participating at, at, at Lend It, uh, for example, I'm not thinking, okay, how many lead cards did I get and, and who's signing up for the fun today? I'm thinking about, I love what I do. I'm having fun. It's education. It's information. And it's just, it's putting ourselves out there. And, and so I think by doing that, regularly, you know, year in and year out, we've gained a lot of exposure. Uh, and that exposure um, has helped us grow pretty significantly as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, so final question, then, I mean, what, what's next for you guys? What's, what's your vision for Prime Meridian going forward? Yeah, so we, we do have something, we have a couple of uh, exciting things in the works for 2018, and don't want to uh, give uh, exactly what it is at this time. But mm-hmm. you know, I would say, you know, uh, you know, keep Keep your eyes out for um, another potential uh, fund launch uh, later this year. 
which is going to be uh, something uh, very unique and very different than what we're doing right now and totally uncorrelated, uh, but, but yet still in the credit space. And so I think uh, that's going to be very, very exciting. And again, it's just a way to evolve as a company and as a firm and, and continue to, to build upon our, our, our great brand and add additional product lines for our investors. And, you know, expect continued growth. Uh, we're also investing uh, significantly in machine learning technology to continue to um, have next generation analytics and predictive modeling on all of our funds and all of our verticals. And so we have uh, some interesting things going on right there. You know, we're always looking to stay one, one step ahead of the game and, and, and how we can, you know, have an edge. And as a reminder, you know, we are active managers. Uh, we, don't, we don't just buy passively and randomly from whatever the originators decide to originate. And so between those two things, I think it's going to be an exciting year, and we expect the continued growth. We're uh, based on our pipeline and our projections. We, we're expecting to hit, you know, 1 billion AUM, you know, by Q4, uh, Q3, Q4 this year, uh, which will be very exciting. Okay, it will be exciting. I'm, I'm I'm very curious to to find out some of those things. But anyway, it's 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 always great to chat with you, Don. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Great chatting with you. Okay. See Take ya. care. Bye bye. Bye. I just want to go back to that point that Don made earlier about the two most important things: you know, borrower experience and investor returns. And I really feel like that. We, we have created this industry that it's, it's incredibly complex and there's so much going on. And when it all boils down to it, you know, there's, it's a two sided equation. You've got the borrowers and you've got the investors. And, you know, if borrower experience is not great, and that includes, you know, interest rates and how you kind of interact with the borrower during the application process. If that isn't great, you're not going to, you're not going to be able to thrive. And at the same time, if, if investor returns go down, then you're not going to be able to attract new capital. And it's really, it's really as simple as that. The companies that are continuing to thrive are those that do well on both sides of the equation. Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening, and I'll catch you next time. Bye. This episode of the Lend Academy podcast was supported by Wonder Capital, the easiest way to invest in large-scale solar energy projects across the U.S. Experts at Bloomberg estimate that $2.8 trillion will be invested in solar energy by 2040. With Wonder Capital's solar investment platform, individuals can now take advantage of this economic opportunity. Visit wondercapital.com slash lendacademy to find out how you can begin investing in solar energy projects while earning up to 7.5% annually and also helping in the fight against climate change.